beheaded. So if you want to make your way to Acts chapter 5, we're going to be picking up where we left off, which is in verse 18, and we'll go all the way to the end of the chapter, Lord willing, this morning. And as you guys make your way in your Bible, and if you don't have one, there's one in the seat pockets in front of you. Uh, as you head your, that way to verse 17, let me just remind you what we've just covered in chapter 4 and the beginning parts of chapter 5 are the church, which has uh, been birthed in chapter 2, has now seen its first persecution come upon it. So there's this amazing miracle that takes place at the beginning of chapter 3 where uh, Peter and John are headed into the temple and a man is given the ability to walk again. Peter just looks at him and says, in the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And so you can imagine the kind of commotion this caused outside of the temple as they then went on into the temple courts. And so with that, the leaders of the uh, of the Sanhedrin, this early part of the, the, the movement there, they were very much against the early church. And so they began to persecute Peter and John and, in fact, threw them into prison. And so Peter and John spent a night in jail. But what we're told at the end of chapter 4 is they, as they were released the next day, they went back rejoicing uh, among their community. And so they were actually encouraged after being thrown into jail. And they prayed specifically for an additional filling of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them again. And you might remember, I encourage you guys to daily pray for this. Pray that it would come upon you and into your life. This is a continual filling that we are able to receive. And what the filling of the Holy Spirit truly does in a life is a spirit-led life will look like one of unity. Will look like a group that's gathered together in one accord. A diverse group, no doubt, but will have unity amidst their diversity. And the other thing that we'll find as, the, as we allow the Spirit to lead our lives is we'll also have purity. At the beginning of chapter 5, we saw two people that did not have purity in their life, Ananias and Sapphira. They came uh, with hypocrisy instead of purity, and what happened to them is they were struck down. Now, don't worry. Uh, if you struggle with hypocrisy, God isn't looking to smoke people right off the bat as soon as they walk into church any longer. But what the Lord wanted to make clear was for the early church, hypocrisy was deadly, and it still is to this day in our lives. And so they, they came with hypocrisy in their hearts and they were struck down, which just highlights the importance of purity in the Christian life. And the other thing what we find out with purity is that it's directly linked to power. So many times we want to see powerful movements of the Spirit in our life, and yet what the Lord really wants us to do is examine our hearts and to find a spot of purity. That with purity, it's linked to the power. And so as the Holy Spirit came upon this early church, the early disciples, what we found in Acts 2 is this flames above their head. And what we know about fire is when you want to purify metal, you heat it up because the impurities all rise to the surface. And so as the Holy Spirit comes into our life and we invite him in, he will actually bring forth impurities, things that we need to deal with and need to scrape off. And if we're willing to allow him to do that in our life, what we'll find is we will have power, but not just power to use at our own discretion, but power to be witnesses, to actually be able to witness to people, to share the gospel message in their lives. And so what we find is this interesting truth that happens in the New Testament. It's uh, Bible math, I'd call it. Now, if any of you are math teachers, this doesn't follow normal order of operations in mathematics, but a subtraction in the Bible actually leads and makes way for multiplication. 
that as Ananias and Sapphira are subtracted from the body, what we find in chapter 5, verse 14, is that the body was then multiplied. These two that were, uh, that were impure in the body of Christ were subtracted, but then multiplication takes place. And this can happen corporately for a church. And it can be painful at times, but it can also happen for us individually. That as God subtracts things from our life or removes things from our life, what he's really doing is trying to allow for multiplication to take place. He wants to multiply, not just financial blessings. He wants to multiply are the fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. These are all the things he desires to multiply in our life but oftentimes there's something that needs to be subtracted so that he can make a way for this to happen. All right, so that's the backdrop of where we were last week and where we're going to begin in verse 17. And then we read, The high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And so what we see is the, the hype now rises up. He wants to speak against these apostles who've gathered together in the early church, and they have indignation in their heart. Or maybe some of your translations will use the word jealousy. In this case, it's the same word. They were jealous over what was happening with the apostles in the early church. Now, the word jealousy is, uh, by definition, to want something back that was previously yours. And what were they jealous over is the, the praise of the people. They wanted the approval of the people. They had sought to have great power over them through religion and through religious practices, and now it's vanishing right before their very eyes. And so what we see is they wanted back what was a previously theirs. And by the way, um, this is actually an attribute that's applied to God himself. Read in the Old Testament is that our God is a jealous God. And it's not a sinful thing because what he's jealous over is us. <laughs> he desires to have us back. We were his. We are his creation, his sons, his daughters. He desires to have us back. He's jealous over us. So in the case of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was a sinful jealousy. In this case, it, it, for God, it's actually not sin at all. He wants us back in relationship with us. Now then in verse 18, and so they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So what did they do? Apparently, this was their go-to move. We don't know what to do with you, so we're going to just throw you in jail. And so for these guys, they throw them in jail. But what, again, were they throwing them in jail for? Because they were performing miracles. They were helping people. In fact, so many people were getting healed that they thought just by being in Peter's shadow would be enough that they could be healed. And so the issue is, for the Sadducees, they did not believe in the miraculous. And they did not believe in the resurrection. And so they've got this major hang-up with their belief system. And so the issue with the apostles is not only were they taking away their power, but also they were disrupting their own personal beliefs. And so if you really want to know what gets people riled up, you want to know what, what is emotional, just somehow get in there and stir up their belief system a little bit. And they were stirring this thing up a little bit because what are you going to say about miracles when there's a lame man that was lame for 40 years that's now walking? How are you going to deny what's taking place? And so they sought instead to just stop them altogether. So they took all the apostles, they throw them into jail, and then in verse 19, but at night... An angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
And so this angel of the Lord shows up, unlocks the prison door, allows them to walk out miraculously, and then shuts the door and locks it behind them and gives them this encouragement to go to the temple and speak. By the way, do you remember where they were just arrested? They were at the temple speaking. So the angel of the Lord lets them out of jail to go back and do the very thing they just got thrown into jail for, but he gives them specific direction to go and share the words of life. I love that phrase, that what they were truly doing for people is sharing with them the very words of life. Do you understand that that's precisely what Jesus is encouraging for each of us to go and do and share? Uh, John chapter 10, verse 10, what Christ said is, he says that the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy, speaking specifically but I have come that they should have life, that they may have it more abundantly. That Christ's desire for us is not only to have eternal life, which, by the way, is a pretty awesome prize. I mean, life for all of eternity, I'll take it for one. But it's not only for eternal life, but also for life right now. The abundant Christian life is supposed to start as soon as we accept him as our Savior. And so, when you hear people saying and talking about their problems, and they might even share with you, hey, you know what? Uh, The Word of God, the Bible, is a great place to start. And I would agree. It's also a great place to be in the middle and at the end and at all points in between. That what we find in the Word of God isn't only about eternity. It isn't only about the afterlife. It's for everyday life. It's supposed to be for us to examine our hearts and to encourage us on a daily basis. And what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by glory and virtue. And so what's in this book that you have in your hands or you have on your phone is not just for eternal life, but for everyday life. There's something for all of us pertaining to life and godliness. It it affects every single facet of your life if you will just simply. And so go and speak the words of life, what the angel tells the apostles to do out in the temple courts. And in verse 21, and when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. And so look at what they did. They get this command from the Lord, from an angel of the Lord, to go and teach, and this is revolutionary, I thought of this all myself, uh, what they did is they went and they taught. <laughs> they, they just simply obeyed. But notice with me in verse 21, they went out early in the morning. They didn't uh, make a few phone calls. They didn't return some messages. They didn't take a little bit of time to do, hey, you know what, S- things distract us, right? I mean, I've got Kohl's cash, right? I've got, I've got to get back to Kohl's. Because there's the Kohl's cash, and if you don't use it, you lose it. I mean, they're basically paying you to shop. It's important. I'm going to get to the Jesus stuff that he put on my heart after I've spent the Kohl's cash. I'm not bitter, as you can tell, about Kohl's cash at all. Because you know what they do when you spend it? They give you more Kohl's cash. So you got to go back again and again every time. But needless to say, I digress. The point is they did not delay. They had something on their heart. They'd been tugged at from their heart. They'd been given direction by the Lord, and they went out immediately and put, their, uh, put feet to their faith. So hear this, and I've actually heard this from people in church too, by the way. As the Lord tugs on your heart, maybe he, he gets to you through a devotional 
or through, uh, you know, just a daily Bible reading, or perhaps there's something maybe the pastor might have said, maybe a different pastor. Maybe there's something the pastor said that so encouraged your heart, and you felt like God is directing you in this way. Uh, You might have heard this, um, just wait until the feeling goes away. (laughs) Maybe some of you have heard that from time to time, and I tell you, that's such a shame, because what, what we don't understand is that God's will is going to be done. Do you get that? His will is going to be accomplished. The question is, are you going to be a part of it or not? <laughs> so many times I think we miss out on these huge blessings because we want to wait for the feeling or the opportunity just to make sure it's the Lord, and yet we don't do that with so many other things in our life. We address them immediately, but we wait and we wait far too long, or we let excuses get in the way. I'm not smart enough. I'm not trained in this way. I don't have enough education, or or surely there's somebody better that he's going to send along, but that's the thing he's called you to do, and for these disciples, they heard, and then they did. That's the way they reacted. Now, I don't know if any of you enjoy history at all, but in uh, Daniel's prophecy, he actually lays out uh, world history in four things, four different world powers. He gives this vision to King Nebuchadnezzar. And so as he gives this vision, he lays out these four different world powers that are going to take over. He starts with the Babylonians, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. He then goes to the next empire. The Medes and the Persians are going to come in, and they're going to take over. And then he goes to the Greeks. They're going to be the third great world power. And then finally, he wraps up with the Roman Empire. Now, Daniel lays all this out, by the way, 600 years before the Roman Empire would ever come into existence. So a pretty amazing prophecy that's located uh, in God's Word that just so happen to come to pass, like all things that God says are going to happen. But what we find is as the Medo-Persian Empire is being conquered, uh, they actually, in fact, are conquered by a a guy that was only 18 years old, (laughs) a guy named Alexander, who was a Greek that later became known as Alexander the Great. And at the age of 32, Alexander the Great, in just 14 years, conquered the entire known world. And what he does as he conquers the entire known world is he uh, converts all the world into a common language, the language of Greek, right? Now, do you know what your New Testament is written in? Greek. Now, what's amazing is after Alexander the Great comes along, the Roman Empire comes in, and the Romans weren't as cultural as the Greeks, but what they were really good at was building stuff. They were tremendous at building architecture and roads. And so as the Romans come in and they take over, they build a road system that connects the entire known world from one end to the other, right about the time of Jesus. And so what you find is um, the entire world spoke a common language, and then there were roads that connected all the world together about the time the gospel needed to be shared from one end of the world to the other. You see, God's always at work, even when it comes to pagan kings. Now, for Alexander the Great, the reason I bring him up is as uh, he was being addressed or asked, what was the key to his success? What was the reason that he was able, how was he able to conquer the entire known world at the age of 32? And his response was, I did not delay. (laughs) He did not delay. And so often, um, that's the key for us in the Christian life. God's got kingdoms he wants us to tear down and conquer and rule and bring his word from one end to the other. He's paving roads, for goodness sake. He's changing languages of entire countries and and world powers so that his word can go forth. 
even when we don't see it. And what he's asking for us is to not delay. Now, for these men who've been called out of the prison, what they knew is they were going to go back to a place where more persecution was going to come. And yet what they know for a fact is that God's past faithfulness is now encouraging future faith. What they've seen is him at work in their lives. That's what I'm getting at. They saw him deliver them miraculously from prison. So it stands to reason that he can deliver them from prison again and again and understand as it relates to your life. He is, he is building faith in your life for future faith events so that you can go back and go, boy, this sounds crazy, and yet I've seen God faithful in this arena in my life, and so I'm going to exercise faith based on previous experience. That's the reason they were able to go boldly into the temple courts where they were just arrested a few hours before. Now, at the end of verse 21, if I don't get myself lost, but the high priest and those with him called and the, called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. And so the chief priest says, hey, bring those guys back out of prison that I just threw in jail last night. But verse 22, when the, elder, when the officers came and did not find them in prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them... We found no one inside. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. And so they went back to the prison to bring these guys back out to hold a trial for them, and instead what they found is nothing. They were completely gone. The door was shut. The guards had no idea what had taken place. They didn't see anybody even leave. And so they have this question here in verse 24. They say, we wonder what the outcome is is going to be? And that's actually a really great question, one that we often ask in our lives. The problem is for most people, they ask when it's way too late. I wonder what the outcome is going to be for eternity. And so hopefully that's not a spot you find yourself in today because we as believers can actually operate with confidence of knowing what the outcome is going to be. I'm going to get to go spend eternity with Jesus regardless of what takes place in the daily. That's where I know I'm going to end up. And so verse 25, so one came and told them, saying, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. And then the captain of the army went to the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. So the, the chief priest brings these guys now back that were just in prison. They show up and say, Hey, we found the guys. They're back in the very spot we just arrested them. This is like a comedy of errors for these guys. I mean, they thought they were in prison. Now they're back the place that they just arrested them from. And so they want to take them by force. They, they basically want to go beat them down right there in the temple courts. But they can't because they're afraid of the people. Remember, the people love these guys. They're healing, they're sick, they're lame, the demon-possessed. All these amazing things are happening. And so they can't take them by force because they're worried about the approval of man. 
It's amazing how even for the sinful, the approval of man is a snare. It's a problem every single time we put our faith in man and not in God. And so they're afraid of what the people might do because they want their adoration. They want their finances. They want their worship. They want to control the people any way they can through their religious systems. And the reality for us is whatever we fear is what we worship. And so they worship the power. They worship the praise of the people and they fear losing it. And so in our lives, whether it is a family, whether it is a job, a career, whether it is finances, whatever it is that we fear, what we're going to find is if we're not careful, that's going to be the thing that we worship. This is calling us to do is lay that down. And so their, their argument here with them is, did we not tell you not to teach in this name? I love that they will not even say the name of Jesus out loud. That's how powerful his name is. But instead, they say, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Your teachings have filled all of Jerusalem, and I wonder, what doctrine am I spreading? What doctrine do I spread everywhere I go? Am I spreading the doctrine of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of hope, of the resurrection, that there's a chance that you have to actually live eternally? Or what thing am I sharing with whoever I come into contact with? Now look at the end of verse 28. They've got this as a complaint. And you intend to bring this man's blood on us. The very blood of Christ, you intend to put this on us. Which is funny because I'm going to turn back to where we covered in the book of Matthew, Matthew 27, uh, verse 24. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person you see to it. And so we're now at the trial of Jesus. And in verse 25, and all the people answered and said, his blood be on us and on our children. You see, they're now upset that the very thing that they asked to be placed upon them is being placed upon them. And it's funny to me because so often we get upset with God about allowing the thing in our life that we wanted in our life. We pray for a thing, we ask for a thing, or or, or better yet, we just completely ignore God altogether until the pressure comes and the persecution comes or the tragedy takes place. And so for us as people, the spot that we're in right now, uh, not to get too political with you at all, but as a country, what we have essentially done is tried to drive God out from every nook and every cranny. We don't want him in our schools. We don't want him in our military. We don't even want him on our money. We want God out in every possible way and form. And then, and then we're upset when everything goes to hell in a handbasket, right? We're shocked that things go down like this. But we have wanted and desired to drive him out to the point to where God just has to say, okay, you asked for it. This is precisely what's going to happen. And what Paul says in Galatians Chapter 6, verse 7, he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows in his flesh will reap corruption. But he who sows in the Spirit will reap, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Do not be surprised. God is not going to be mocked. What a man sows, 
he will also reap. And what is the laws of reaping and sowing? It's threefold. Uh, first of all, whatever you sow, whatever kind it is, that's the same kind you're going to reap. And so what I mean by that is uh, you don't go to your garden and plant tomatoes and then corn grows up just a few months later. It doesn't happen that way. If you plant tomatoes, you grow tomatoes. I know this is earth-shattering kind of stuff, but, but it's a fact. The second law of sowing and reaping is we don't plant today and then reap tomorrow. You don't go out and plant a seed, and the next day it's a full-grown plant. It just doesn't happen. So we always reap after we sow. It happens later. And then thirdly and finally, you always reap more than you sow. So whatever kind you're sowing in your life, you're going to reap more of that later on, some 30, some 60, and some hundredfold. And so the cautionary tale for us, whether it is in the workplace or in the home place or in the church place or whatever place it is, it's what kind of seed am I sowing in those around me and in my own life. And so the laws of sowing and reaping apply to us corporately and us as people individually. Now, verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Their response was, uh, who should we really obey here? I mean, is this, is this even a question? And so they answer back and say, we ought to obey, or perhaps a better translation, if you look at the Greek, is we must obey God rather than man. You see, the thing is, with, with obeying God, though, while obedience is a must, he will never force us into doing it because God's a gentleman. And so he gives us free choice. He gives us the ability to choose because love always demands a choice. Forced love isn't love at all. There's another word for it. I'll spare you that, but you all understand what I'm talking about. Forced love isn't love. It demands a choice. And so God's desire is that we choose him. And so one of the beautiful things about being a follower of Jesus is we have choices, one of the worst things about being a follower is we have choices. So many times I'd love for him to just say, do this, do that. There's no choice in the matter because it would be much more direct. And yet he gives us a choice because he wants us to, to fall in love with him. And the law was perfect at what it was supposed to do. And that was actually not just give us relations, but to protect us. The law that he creates, that he gives us, is actually his love. Think about the way you parent your kids, right? You have these rules and regulations for them, not because you want to be evil dictators, but because we want them to be safe and protected and cared for. The same is true for God. And so his desire for us is to actually, instead of forcing us to do the law, the law come from the inside out, not the outside in. Now, God also tells us very clearly through the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 that he gives us authority in our life. Romans 13, verse 1, says this very clearly. Paul says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And so all authority, no matter whether they're good or bad, and remember, Paul is writing this at the, during the reign of Caesar Nero, 
Uh, Caesar Nero was a particularly awful guy. Uh, one of his favorite pastimes was taking Christians, uh, dipping them in hot oil, and then shoving a stick through them and setting them on fire while he rode his chariot around his garden naked. So not the greatest of guys. And Paul is saying all authorities are appointed by God and that we are to adhere to what they say in our life. That's actually God's direction in our life. And yet, what happens when it comes to civil disobedience? How then do we address being civilly disobedient? Here are these men in Acts. They're being told specifically not to go share the gospel any longer. And yet, what does Peter say? We're going to have to obey God and not man on this. We, we are going to be civilly disobedient to what you're telling us to do. And so what we see is in Scripture, there are times where civil disobedience is actually accepted and also God-ordained. Think about uh, Pharaoh telling the Hebrew midwives to kill all the babies in ancient Egypt. What they didn't do was actually kill all the babies. They had a, a great story. They said, look, the Hebrew women are strong, and they just, you know, they just have this amazing ability to just give birth. Before we can even show up, babies just pop out, and we can't get there in time. And so, so they've got these, these reasons for being civilly disobedient. Or, or think about uh, Rahab and the story of Joshua. As the spies come into Jericho, what Rahab, the prostitute, does is takes these men and hides them in her house, even though the king of Jericho said, bring these men out. She hides them, and when she's questioned about it, she lies. And God's actually good with that kind of civil disobedience. She's protecting the people of God. She knew what in this scenario. And so the question is, where do we stand when it comes to civil disobedience? The two things I wanted to share with you. First of all, if we're going to be civilly disobedient, it must come under the authority of Scripture. Here, the, the uh, rulers of the Sanhedrin do not want them to go and share the gospel. And yet, what is the command of Jesus in Matthew 28? But go and share the gospel. What does the angel tell them in verse 20 that we just covered? Go and share the gospel. They have a scriptural basis for their, for their civil disobedience. That's important because then it means that my disobedience isn't just based in emotion and what, how I feel that day. Often our feelings can come and go as the wind blows, but when we have scriptural basis, when it's rooted in God's word, we now have a backing for our disobedience. The next piece is it does not just simply allow me to get out of the laws of the land, right? There are certain laws, uh, for example, uh, like the speed limit sign, right? There's the speed limit out there. It's a law of the land. It, there's no scriptural basis for disobeying the speed limit. But I will tell you, in my life, I have been a prolific breaker of that particular law. I, I was really good at it. It was like Mario Andretti was reincarnated into my body, and I could speed. In fact, I would even justify my speeding. After Christ, I would say, look, I got places to go for Jesus, right? Like, the Lord's good with this. And I, I actually got worse at speeding for a while because I thought, I'm in God's will. Like, there's nothing that can even happen to me in God's will. So I'm going through the hills and hollers of southeast Missouri like a bat out of hell because I'm thinking, what could touch me? I'm in God's will in this spot. Until the Lord convicted me about speeding. But I'm like, Lord, I've got my inner Sammy Hagar. I can't drive 55. Like, that's me. I feel like I can't possibly drive 55. But, but the Lord convicted me of speeding. And what I found in actually adhering to the laws of the land 
is there's great freedom in it, believe it or not. So this last week, I got the opportunity to drive all the way to Florida and all the way back with the family and set that bad boy on cruise control. And you know what? Never one time I was worried about a cop. Never did I even do the old hesitation, like, oh, the move, you know, the move. It's like, oh, boy, looking in the rear view, got past another one. Take that, copper. Cops come and try to snatch my crops. I'm going. I'm going for it, right? So that's the way I used to be. It was constant turmoil because I'm always looking in the median. Where's their speed trap? Where are they going to try to get me? There was no peace in that ever. Not to mention the blonde Holy Spirit me constantly reminded me how fast I'm going all the time. There was no peace in the car. There was no peace in my heart because I knew that I was not adhering to the laws of the land. And so it's a beautiful thing to actually adhere and allow the law to take shape in our life. If we get there a little later, it's not a big deal. And so immediately you find peace happens when we just simply adhere to these things. Now, uh, secondly, civil disobedience must be carried out with humility. I think that's important for us to note is that civil disobedience is uh, throughout Scripture. When you think about Daniel, he was intentionally being disobedient against the laws of the land. King Darius said, no one for the next 30 days is to pray to anyone else other than me as the king. Acknowledge me as God. And so what Daniel knew is he had no scriptural basis for this. Daniel was only going to pray to God himself, to Jehovah. And so for, as was his custom, we're told in Daniel chapter 6, and I love that, as was his custom, he went to the exact same spot with his window open, facing Jerusalem, and he prayed three times a day. And as a result, he gets thrown into the lion's den. But never at all in that story do you see Daniel shaking his fist, cursing at King Darius, telling him, how dare he take my rights? I'm a Christian. Hang up for my rights. He never once did. He knew that he had violated the law, but it wasn't with scriptural authority. And so he knew he had the authority of scripture, and whatever happened to him, come what may. He goes into the lion's den, and no lion is able to touch Daniel, and yet he did all this in complete and total humility. And this is one of the hardest things for us to grasp, especially as Midwesterners. We love to dig our heels in. But how often do I do it in humility? <laughs> I do it mostly in anger and frustration. But in the life of Christ, who we're called to model ourselves after, what you see with Jesus is never one time does he back down. He does not back down. Down. When you read Jesus saying the woes to the Pharisees, I want you to read that and understand the way he was saying it isn't like we think about in Bible stories. It wasn't, woe to you Pharisees, scribes, hypocrites. It was, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you. With a, with a cry from his heart, with power. And yet, think about him on trial. Never did he even say a word to speak in his own defense with complete and total humility he allowed them to falsely accuse him and crucify him he did so with humility and so that's the two ways that we can be civilly disobedient and know that we're in God's will when we do so so here in verse 30 Peter's going to continue the God of our fathers raised up Jesus 
whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. I love how Peter gets that in with every one of his messages. Hey, remember Jesus? He's the one you killed. You, you crucified him. I'm going to get that in there. But then he continues and says, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And so Peter's going to say, look, here's the salvation message in a nutshell, that you crucified Jesus, but he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day, and because of this, you too can have repentance. Your sins can be forgiven. And what Peter always does, anytime he shares and gets that little dig in about the crucifixion, he immediately follows it up with the resurrection. The same way Jesus did. Every time Jesus talks about his death, his crucifixion in the New Testament, he immediately follows it up with the resurrection. And so the apostles, knowing this as they share this, that they can have confidence that if Christ was raised from the dead, they will be as well. Amazing thing, because what we'll find, if we'll have that in mind, is there is nothing this world can do. For these men, there was nothing that the Sanhedrin could do to them because they knew even if they were murdered, they were going to be raised again. Even death didn't have a sting to it. So in verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. And then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And so Gamaliel now steps up. Now what we know about him is that he was actually a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. His most famous student, in fact, was a guy named Saul of Tarsus, who we're going to meet here in just a few weeks, that later became the apostle Paul. Gamaliel was his instructor in the law, and he was a respected guy because of his command of Scripture. They didn't agree with his politics, but they, but they had respect for his command and knowledge of Scripture. And in verse 35, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thaddeus rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. But he was slain, and all who obeyed him scattered and came to nothing. And after this, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many people away after him. But he also perished, obeyed him, were dispersed. And now I say to you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And so Gamaliel's advice was, uh, let these guys go and give this a little bit of time, because if this is from the energy of men, as happens anytime we want to just apply our energy only to something, eventually we will wear out. That's what he's saying. They're going to wear themselves out trying to fight against you. But on the flip side, if this is of God, if this is of God, you are not going to have victory if you're going to fight against God. And that's the reality in, in our life to this very day. If you want to go up against God on a thing, guess who wins? Uh, not you. I'll, I'll save you the trouble. You are not going to win if you're going to fight against God. And so in verse 40, they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak the name of Jesus and let them go. And so they listened to Gamaliel, sort of. He said, let them go, not 
let the, not beat them and let them go, but instead they brought them in, they beat these men. And we read that word beaten, I want to tell you, it's the same word as flogged or scourged. Same thing they did to Jesus before his trial or during his trial. 39 lashes across the bare back. These men took a significant beating in the name of Jesus on the account of the gospel. And so they were beaten severely and then sent away. They were flogged and sent on their way, commanded not to speak the name of Jesus any longer. So then verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Imagine that. Here's men beaten with 39 lashes across the bare back, and they leave not head hanging, but instead rejoicing. And the reason they were able to rejoice after this kind of persecution is because they suffered for the name of Christ. They suffered for the sake of us. And I will tell you that I have been beaten in the sense of the word many times in my life, but it's almost always come because of my own sin, my own selfishness, and my beatings often look like shame and regret and just feeling like a total failure, but it was almost always because of my own selfishness. But here, what we see is righteousness actually produces rejoicing when you suffer for the sake of righteousness. So this is the case for these men. And what you see, this is truly what freedom looks like. I mean, here these men were beaten to within an inch of their life, and they leave rejoicing because the worst that these people could do to them was beat their physical bodies. They could not touch their soul. They could not touch their salvation in any way, shape, or form. And I want to encourage you in that, that the worst this world could throw at you is the closest you're ever going to be to hell in this life as a believer in Jesus Christ. And the promise we have waiting on us is heaven. So what's the absolute worst that could happen in that scenario? And then lastly, in verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so daily they went right back to the very place they were told not to any longer, preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Winston Churchill famously said that a fanatic is someone who will not change his mind and will not change the subject. These men would not change their mind, and they were not about to change the subject of preaching Jesus as the Christ. What did the people need more than anything? They needed a Savior. They needed Jesus, and they needed one who was anointed, the Christ, the anointed one, the Mashiach, but they continued to preach daily. And they would not cease. They would not stop sharing the words of life. I want to share one last passage with you from John chapter 6, verse 66 is actually where I'm going to pick up on and start. Jesus had just got done sharing a very difficult message for many of them to be able to take. And in verse 66, from that time, Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
when they had the opportunity to go away, to stop this ministry, their answer was, where else could we go? You have the very words of life, and you are the Christ, the author of life, the son of the living God. Where else could we possibly go? So I want to encourage you this week as you go about to realize that the words you have to share are the very words of life. And it's the difference between life and death for many people you come into contact with. It may not always seem like words of life. Maybe you don't feel like you've been empowered in that way. I want to assure you by the power of the Holy Spirit you have been. Maybe your abilities are baking muffins or cookies or a lasagna and it's the neighbor next door. Understand that as you get the opportunity to go next door and share with them, it's not about muffins or cookies or lasagna. It's a matter of life and death when you share in that way. Maybe it's the, the lost person that sits in the cubicle next to you, and it's just merely a matter of talking to them about the football game on Sunday. But understand, as you get the opportunity to share seemingly a meaningless conversation, what you are really doing is communicating words of life to them because pretty soon what's going to open up is an opportunity to share the gospel. You're going to get to be Jesus with skin on, and it's the matter of life and death. These things that we think are so minor, so inconsequential, it is the difference between life and death. The words of life that you have right here. And so, Father, thank you, and we praise you for the words of life that we get such an opportunity to share. Thank you, Lord, that we get the chance to not change the subject, that we get to continue to press into you and into your salvation. Thank you for the way that counted us worthy of suffering. While often it doesn't feel like worthiness, it is, we are so worthy because you deemed us to be. Thank you, Lord, for the words of life. In Jesus' name. Please stand.
says amen amen thank you guys so much uh, for coming if you need prayer at all i'll be happy to hang around up front and pray for you over you hope you guys have a great week this week